Blog Talk Radio. You know, I was going to get in my car and go, but I said, you know, there's six seconds left. 
And it's not likely that anything's going to happen in six seconds, I said. But, you know, Oklahoma is horrendous on special teams, and they are horrendous defensively. So if if Georgia ran a draw play, it wouldn't surprise me that Sonny Michelle or Nick, or Nick Chubb could have gone 75 yards and, and scored a touchdown with six seconds to go. I didn't think Austin Seibert, the kicker from Oklahoma, was going to kick a 10-yard squib kick um, <laughs> and take no time off the clock. And I remember when that happened going, no, no. But I tell you, Kip, it turned out to be, in my opinion, the play that won the game for Georgia for two reasons. Mm-hmm. Number one, as you said, it was a tale of two halves. Had that game... Had the half not ended that way, Georgia would have gone into the half not down 14, but down 17. That's a big deal. When you're down two scores, Mm -hmm. you think you're still in the game. When you're down three scores, a lot tougher. And even separate of that, Kip, it was such a momentum swing because Kirby Smart called two timeouts before that third down play because he knew how important it was that the Georgia defense hold Oklahoma to a field goal instead of a touchdown. He knew that that could have made the difference between possibly winning the game and being out of the game. And I just don't know how you can make such a colossal mistake on such a big stage when all you have to do is squib kick the ball past 10 yards. You know, I remember I remember saying when I when I was watching it I said I just have a bad feeling that that's going to lose the game for Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And look, we can we can all talk about what happened in the second half in overtime, and 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 that's all true. But the reality is, without that field goal, Oklahoma wins by three points. And um, I, I just I, I just can't emphasize as much as the offenses were important yesterday, and as much as Oklahoma had as poor of a tackling day as I have ever seen from a championship-type football team. I don't know that I've ever seen anybody. Look, Sony Michelle and Nick Chubb, you're exactly right. They're both going to go in the first round of the NFL draft. If they can stay healthy, they're going to have long NFL careers. They're very talented. Georgia was lucky to have them back. Um, but this Auburn defense, which got manhandled by Central Florida, and we'll talk about that in a minute, in the first game held those two to 47 yards. How that happened, I don't know, but the reality is – um, that was about as poor of a tackling performance as I have ever seen. I've coached nine-year-old kids in football, and you know, <laughs> nine-year-old kid football that tackled better and took better gaps and lanes and angles than Oklahoma did. But, Kev, what were you thinking at the end of the first half when you saw, um, you know, you you saw, and then Rodrigo Blankenship nails a 55-yarder, the longest of his career. Now, not only are you going into halftime down 14 instead of 17, you're also going in with momentum. Definitely. I and mean, that's exactly what the thought, because the whole – first of all, there is few plays in football that I think are more ridiculous and indefensible than the squib kick. I'm still haunted yep. by a, a couple of years ago, uh, Georgia was completely outplayed by Georgia Tech in Athens. Uh, Mark Richt uh, and the the dogs scored a touchdown with just like 10 or 12 seconds left to put them ahead by three. And 
he ordered up some squib kicks to Tech, and they did the same thing. They kicked it about 10 or 12 yards, and Tech knocked it down and recovered it. Yeah. So all they really had to do was complete one pass, and the exact same scenario happened in that game, except for Tech kicked their field goal and tied the game, uh, sent it to overtime, and they ended up beating Georgia in OT. Uh, it, I, it was almost like a flashback. It was like they didn't just do that. But then you still thought, well, there's only five seconds now. You know, what could Georgia really do? You know, Fromm's not like the rocket arm going to throw it 70 yards. And I bet you never know what can happen. But from a strategic standpoint, uh, to have the confidence that Blankenship could maybe knock that thing through, they set, they ran an intermediate route, 14 yards on the sidelines, hit it, guy steps out of bounds, one second left. Um, you know, it was it was amazing that there was even time left. And then, uh, you know, as, as they line up for that field goal, I'm thinking to myself, there's no way Blankenship makes this. Uh, he's an interesting story. His career long is 47. Um, and, and this guy was a walk-on and didn't have a scholarship until the Notre Dame game. Uh, he, he's, he's kind of become a, a, a mythical character. Uh, of course, they call him Hot Rod. Um, and and uh, he wears glasses to kick. And, you know, Fear the glasses. Fear the glasses. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really an amazing story. And, and darn if he doesn't just knock it in uh, with about an inch and a half to spare. But you're right, Chip. That was a gigantic play in that game. And Lincoln Riley, who by all accounts and, and certainly the game plan and the play calling in the first half, uh, Oklahoma, Georgia's defense is, is very good, and uh, particularly their linebacking core. But the, what, what the looks at all of the, uh, the different um, – angles and all the different kind of uh, plays that, that weren't typical of the Oklahoma resume during the year. Uh, Roquan Smith, who was the Butkus Award winner, was just lost in the first half. I mean, he, a guy that makes 13, 14, 15 tackles routinely every game, I think he had like one and a half at halftime. Yes. Uh, but and, when they and made then he that was all over the field in the second half. Every, I mean, everywhere in the second half because yeah. I think they finally got over – and I know this is a long uh, – I've segued into a different area. But, uh, yes, that kick was the difference. But the defense adjustment right on top of that, uh, the three and out to start the second half, one handoff to Nick Chubb, and all of a sudden, like you said, it's a seven-point game. Uh, what, a, what a difference that play made. But the defensive adjustment, I think, was simply get over the fact – I think they amplified the Baker-Mayfield factor to such a degree yeah. – that he was some kind yeah. of mythical character that was going to be impossible to contain. And everybody was so obsessed with, with keeping eyes on him that uh, Oklahoma was just gouging the Georgia defense with the run game. Anderson was unstoppable. When Georgia finally got back to just playing base defense and stuffed their run in the second half, it made Oklahoma one-dimensional, and they just weren't very effective. And it, it, was, it was an amazing game from a strategy and adjustment and momentum standpoint. And uh, just just a win for the ages for Georgia. Kirby Smart in his second year on that stage, um, it's it's just it, it's just an incredible accomplishment for Georgia football. And anybody who questioned the Mark Richt move, uh, I think they're going to be pretty silent now because I don't think under Mark Richt's regime that this ever comes close to happening. Yeah, maybe not. It, it, probably not. In fact, I, I would agree with that assessment. I, I tell you. You know, this team has had the horseshoe all year. Um, you know, they are good and they're lucky. 
And when you're good mm-hmm. and you're lucky, watch out, well, Alabama, because, uh, right. you know, uh, but we'll see. I mean, I, I actually take a different take. We're going to welcome in uh, live from Buffalo, Buffalo uh, New York, uh, Mr. Pete Tasker here in just a minute. But I actually take a, a, a little bit of a different take, Kip, on, uh, you know, on, uh, on Mayfield. I mean, he completed his first four or five passes. Um, you know, just kind of danced around in the pocket a little bit. And I, I think, you know, mm-hmm. I don't think they respected him enough coming out. And, um, you know, I, I think they, you know, they, they thought, oh, well, Oklahoma's never seen a defense like ours. And that's true, you know, but, uh, you know, they had to get kicked in the, in the teeth before, um, you know, b- before they realized that, uh, wow, he is pretty good and, and, you know, we do have to contain him. And they did. They got help, too, in the fact that they didn't, you know, Oklahoma was was playing so poorly defensively that you know very rarely can you come from behind with without a a passing game. And I, I say that with all due respect to Jake Fromm. I think he's I think he's a baller. I think he's a good quarterback. You know, but make no mistake about it. I mean, Georgia was able to come back because you know Oklahoma couldn't tackle, and Sony Michelle and Nick Chubb were running over. Well, actually, they weren't even running over them, Kip. I mean, there were Just nine cool. or ten plays that I saw where they broke off 20, 25 yards where they were never touched. I mean, it wasn't even mm-hmm. close. So, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, look, I mean, um, take your hat off to Georgia. This week is going to be a, a absolutely insufferable week for me here. And, uh, you know, uh, not only does Auburn lose to Central Florida, you know, but oh. Auburn beats the – Beats the two teams playing in the national title, and yet still finds a way to lose four games. Go figure that. Pete Tasca, we're going to talk about the NFL in a minute because we got a lot to talk about the NFL. But Pete, we're talking college football right now. We're talking about the Rose Bowl, an instant classic. Your thoughts on the game yesterday in Pasadena? Well, good evening, fellas. Good to be back on with everybody. Happy New Year. Uh, I thought it was a phenomenal football game. I mean, the, the entertainment value, it couldn't have been any higher than what we got out of that game. I mean, the, the setting was just glorious. Uh, the Rose Bowl is just, just what a venue, you know, to watch a football game. You know, the, the beautiful weather, the colors, and just the fireworks on the field. I, I heard you talking about the squib kick at the end of the half. There really was. I mean, I hate to laugh and, and rub it in the face of the Sooner yeah. Nation, but um, – just a ridiculous call, and obviously extremely poorly executed to the nth degree, yeah. and, and that that may have been the, the the ultimate factor in the game. But you know the the adjustments that were made at halftime defensively, as you've already touched on, uh, by Kirby Smart and the Georgia defense were were highly impressive. You know, I, I read a couple of things that that you know poked at Lincoln Riley for going conservative with the best quarterback in the nation, kind of going away from what got them there. Won that kid the Heisman Trophy and got the program, you know, into this position again this year. And and you you can make a statement about that, but the Georgia defense came out firing in the second half, and and that running game again. I don't know, is it a product of the Oklahoma defense poor tackling, sweet cheese, or is it just a product of you know just tremendous athletes on the other side of the ball and and just a team that was ready to win that football game no matter what come you know H E double L or high water and. Hats off to Kirby Smart and the Bulldogs, Chip. I, I know you're not a big fan, uh, but, hey, they're, they're, they're a worthy team, and, and they did it in spectacular fashion last night. And you know, It's going to be an interesting ball game against the Alabama Crimson Tide. We, we know that's going to be a fact. So I'm interested to hear what you fellas have to say about this matchup. I really am. 
Well, I, there are a tremendous amount of storylines. We're going to get to that here in just a second. And, uh, and Pete, you're right. I mean, we, you talk about questionable play calling by Lake and Riley. Um, I, I tell you what I thought was very questionable. Um, first overtime, they hold Georgia to a field goal. You give the ball at the 25-yard line to your Heisman Trophy quarterback, and if Oklahoma scores a touchdown on that drive, an untimed drive, um, so they don't have to worry about spiking the ball and getting in there. All they have to worry about is getting plays off before the play clock expires. And, and they run the ball three times and kick a field goal. Um, yeah. I'm sitting here going, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Inexplicable. You don't Inexplicable. give your Heisman Trophy quarterback an opportunity one time in that three-down series. I, I just, uh, you know, uh, and look, look, Georgia very well could have stopped him. They they did a really good job of containing Baker Mayfield in the second half. So it's easy to look back and be a, you know, uh, uh, you know, and be a Monday morning quarterback after the fact. But you know, uh, my my guess is. Um, you know, Lincoln Riley is probably going to have a lot of nights, you know, like Kyle Shanahan has had over the past year. Because, I, mm-hmm. you know, Kyle Shanahan be the first one to tell you he wishes he would have had that call back in the Super Bowl. I don't know that the, the overtime calls uh, were as bad as Kyle Shanahan's were. But when you look back at it, you're running the football three times when you score a touchdown and, and you, you have an opportunity to play uh, the next week. It just, it just leaves you scratching your head. Uh, Kip Kiefer, Pete had mentioned, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, um, you know, the, the matchup this week. Before we get to the matchup, as good as the Rose Bowl was, and it was an unbelievable football game, with so many, it looked like momentum swings. But those momentum swings were kind of mini momentum swings because I feel like Oklahoma had the momentum in the first half. Georgia had the momentum in the second half. Yes, uh, you know, there were some touchdowns. There were some plays here and there. But that's where it was. But as exciting as the Rose Bowl game was, the Sugar Bowl game was equally, if not more, boring, which is exactly what Nick Saban wanted. <laughs> he did not want the excitement that – that happened out on the West Coast. They just showed up as a number four seed. Lucky to get in, candidly. I thought the committee was going to go with Ohio State. And they really dominated Clemson. Kelly Bryan didn't look comfortable at all. Looked as bad as he had looked all year. Um, You know, it was a typical Alabama game. And, you know, one of the things I realized, Kip, towards the end of that game is that defense is finally healthy. They had two players who have not played since the Florida State game in the opening game. So that defense is healthy and rested. Um, Real quick, before we get into previewing the national championship game, Kip, your thoughts on on Clemson, Alabama, and the Sugar Bowl last night? Well, last week when we broke down the game, you know, I made the statement, and some people may have thought I was uh, insane if they went and looked at the stats, but I said I I have, have thought all year that against real top-level competition, the Clemson offense is suspect. Uh, I just, you know, they, they, they had a year where they made some big plays and had some fortuitous uh, – their defense set their offense up a lot of times, and that, that was kind of the formula for them. But Bryant's not very experienced. They had uh, two of their three predominant ball carries were freshmen. Um, yeah, they have Hunter Renfro, but they, they didn't have the big 6'5 dominant receiver that they had last year with Deshaun Watson, Williams. Um, and their defense is phenomenal, but I just had that feeling about their offense. And, you know, it was, it was just one of those deals where you give Nick Saban 30 days 
um, you know, he's 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 probably going to find the formula to uh, to, to make another team's offense look bad. Now, in all of this all of this controversy now about it's all SEC and it's Alabama and they shouldn't even have been in. If you don't like the system, then that's that's what's got to change. If the committee is tasked with picking the four best teams in the country, Alabama had to be in the mix. I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There, there is a, there is a such thing as, 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 uh, as the eye test and anybody with any logic at all, uh, who watches college football could not, with a straight face, say that Alabama was. There were four teams in the country better than them, and you know. So that's. I, I think all the controversy is ridiculous. I'm sorry, Big Ten fan, West Coast fan. You're going to have to watch an All SEC final, but you know, it's the four best teams. Both of them uh, earned their way into the game, and you know, like you said, Chip, it was the it was the cookie cutter Alabama. You know, prototype. Saban even was saying after the game, we just needed to recapture our identity, and this is that was exactly yeah. what he meant. Grind it out, you know, slobber knocker, you know, three yards of a cloud of dust. Because as great as the Alabama offense looked, defense looked, the offense looked pretty pedestrian. Of course, that was a great Clemson defense, but that's why anybody who's dismissing Georgia's chances this week. Uh, or to coming up next Monday, I think they maybe need to take a, a hard look because uh, you know I think I think the Alabama offense, Georgia's defense isn't going to be facing near the challenge they faced this past week, so it could be another very similar game to that Clemson game, and it's just a game of field position. And when the huge play was made by Alabama that really sealed the deal, Clemson had their best offensive success on four consecutive plays, got down to the Alabama twenty-nine. Looked like maybe they were uh, in position to go ahead in the game, or at least cut it to ten to nine. And then the disastrous play: Jeffries clobbers Bryant, the ball pops up in the air, and Duran uh, Payne, Duran the hands Payne, snags it and rumbles. And then later on that same drive, is, has it ever happened in the history of football that a three hundred pound defensive tackle? Has an interception and yeah. four plays later catches a touchdown pass. That was a phenomenal yeah. sweep. Yeah. Only, only a Nick Saban coach team, Kip. Only a Nick Saban coach team. Pete Tasca, you've been on this podcast all year, and I've been uh, pretty outspoken at how um, what a down year it was for the conference this year. I mean, normally <laughs> the strength of the Southeastern Conference is its depth. Not so this year. I thought from top to bottom we were as, as – uh, as 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 bad as we've been top to bottom in 15, 20 years. Uh, bowl season kind of played that out a little bit. Um, SEC uh, had, I think, the worst bowl season they've had in eight or nine years. And the Big Ten, the Big Ten, had it not been for a last-minute or uh, a late collapse by Michigan against South Carolina, um, the Big Ten would have gone undefeated in bowl games. You don't live in SEC country. How much outrage is there? task at the fact that as bad of a year as the SEC has had, the the two best teams in the conference are also the two teams playing for the national title on Monday night in Atlanta. Well, first of all, Tip, no need to apologize in lobbying for Alabama being in the um, in the college football playoffs here. I mean, th- there is no question that they deserve that spot yeah. and they've proven it. 
I mean, there, there really is no argument. Yeah, okay, maybe Ohio State. Maybe you could have given them a, a, a glance um, in terms of considering them getting in. And, and we all know uh, Kirk Herbstreit was, was pretty upset about that whole selection process. But, you know, I, I really do believe that they're going to have to expand this field out to six or eight teams. <clears throat> you know, you consider, I, I hate to bring it up again, Chip, but, you know, UCF and the season that they had and, you know, just a just a number of teams that you know it would make it would make the field that much more interesting, the tournament that much more interesting, bowl season that much more interesting. I don't know why college football is so reluctant to make any changes. I know it's so steeped in tradition. All that to say, most people up this way, Chip, don't even have a pulse when it comes to college football. Quite frankly, <laughs> I'm an outlier. You know, that's why I'm on this podcast and I listen to you fellas every week just about because I need my fix. I mean, I'm, I'm on an island around here. Everybody's outside, you know, shoveling snow this time of year and still cheering over the bills. But um, it, it's it's just it's the game that really you could have made a case for Oklahoma, of course. Obviously, Clemson was rightfully in in the spot that they were in. But they were over, overmatched and they were outcoached. And, and just, hey, Nick, Nick Saban turned up the heat. Just when he needed to, Jalen Hurts, you know, didn't play a great game, but you know, a strong enough game. You know, running the football, throwing the football. Where I, I think this team is probably going. If you could say that about an Alabama football team, it's probably going to steal the national championship. Because in yeah, some sense, yeah. based on the question and how they got in, and the fact that you're, you're talking about the the teacher and the pupil with Saban and Smart, yeah, and I. I'd love to see Georgia get it done. You know I would, without question. And I hope they get it done, but I'm having a hard time seeing them beating the Alabama Crimson Titans this ballgame. I sure hope they do, but we shall see. These are the two best teams in college football this year, both SEC you know, football teams, and rightfully so. Too bad for the rest of the nation. <laughs> yeah, Kip, uh, what do you? How do you see this game playing out? I mean, with with the, with uh, with Pete's comment, I mean, this is the one year, probably the one year that I can think of where if we did have an eighteen playoffs, and if we played the playoffs eight times, you could have five different winners. I mean, oh, there no there is. I mean, you, you look. I mean, you know, this is the first national title game, either BCS title game or college football playoff title game, where both teams in the title game were beaten by the same team. And by the way, that same team, Auburn, lost four games this year. They lost four <laughs> games, but they beat Georgia and Alabama. So a lot of parity in college football this year. You know, how do you handicap? I mean, I, I think if these teams played ten times on a neutral field, each of them would win five games. This game is going to be decided on the margins. Great storylines, teacher versus pupil. I just find it hard to believe that Georgia's going to lose. I've been telling my Georgia friends today, not one of them who's humble today, ironically, after Devon Bellamy, <laughs> you know, goes and uh, lectures uh, Baker Mayfield at the end of the game. And no humility. Uh, I've seen no humility coming out of Georgia fans. You'd think they'd win it. You'd think they had won it all, and they should already have the trophy. And that they're, you know, they're waiting on Tom Brady and the New England Patriots to come into Sanford Stadium because they have a week off to prepare for the bye week. But none, nonetheless, um, I just find I, I think Georgia's one of those teams this year. Um, you know, the way they won that game, they're going to be playing with house money. I've told all my Georgia fans this year, I'm going to pass the plate like an offering. The only way Georgia loses this game is if I bet on them. 
Haven't decided what I'm going to do, Kip, but how do you handicap this game coming up Monday night? Well, I'm sure Pete would join me in expressing there cannot be a more nightmarish situation. Or that's oh. why I call it nightmarish. Well, it is nightmarish, but it's also conflicting for you as a as a oh, yeah. men and all, and all Auburn fans. As a tremendous oh, yeah. SEC supporter, you've got to love it the yeah. fact that the the national champion is going to be from the SEC. But on the other hand, what a nightmare yeah. for Chip Lake and Auburn and Auburn Nation. Yeah. <laughs> it's Georgia and Alabama in the national championship game. Two teams that Auburn beat during the regular season. Hard, and what hard makes it worse is we lost to Central Florida last night on the same <laughs> field that Georgia beat us in the SEC title game. After giving, after doubling uh, Gus's uh, time and money, so uh, yeah, so uh, it's amazing now Gus today. is the fourth highest paid coach in the country, and he's got four losses. So I guess next year, if he has three losses, we'll make him the third highest paid coach in the country. I'm sorry, <laughs> Kip, I digress. No, no, but you're right. I mean, if you look at the last five years, Auburn has, uh, I think, I, I think it's uh, maybe it's the last four years. It's six, five, five, and four number of losses. So it isn't like you know Gus has had them uh, just on a on a tremendous yeah. roll. But uh, I, I think I think there was overreaction in the in the fact that uh, he was he would have taken the Arkansas job and and uh, I you know yeah. with. The highs and lows of the season, halfway through the year, when they lost that LSU game, people were ready to hang hang Gus. Uh, then he then he was the, the toast of the state after beating Georgia and Alabama, and now to finish this way with two really disappointing performances in Mercedes-Benz Stadium, uh, and I think Auburn opens there next year. So that I was just about to say, Kip, to and to make things it. worse, we play our next football game there. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Unbelievable. So I'd be three in a row at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. As far as the matchups concerned, um, I, you know, again, I think I think the Georgia defense, despite the fact that they were caught completely on their heels in the first half and made to look terrible, uh, they match up very well with what, what Alabama wants to do on on uh, offense. And the plan with Mayfield was was smart to not really rush up field, but to just basically pin him in the pocket and not give him the option of running side to side. And that really worked well in the second half. But the, the key to that is you get pressure up the middle with your, with your down lineman. Yeah. And they, they didn't get that in the first half. The second half, they just wore down the, the uh, undersized Oklahoma offensive line, a very good offensive line, but, uh, uh, number 52, Tyler Clark, who was a guy that he didn't even notice during the regular season. The guy played like a man possessed yesterday. Uh, every play yeah. he was pushing his guy out of the way and getting in the backfield. And that's the kind of the kind of game you have to have from several people. And Roquan Smith in the second half was just a guy that missed. He was never in the right place in the first half, and that's why Oklahoma exploited them. He was he was uh, everywhere in the second half and made so many plays. I mean, the guy's a phenomenal talent. But, I, you know, and I think the matchup for the Georgia defense, of course, against Alabama uh, is a much easier task. Now, it's a, a much more difficult task for Georgia's offense, of course, going against Alabama's defense uh, because you know they can play at that level. And all of their uh, – of course, now there's Jeffries, who had such a great game last night. Uh, he limped off with a knee injury. There's no update on his status. So that linebacker core just continues to just be ravaged 
it's happened to them all season long. Uh, so that's a big key in the game if he's going to be able to come back. I don't think Georgia's going to have a lot of offensive success in the game like they did against uh, Oklahoma. But those two premier backs and Fromm's ability just to step up and make a play when he has to, how manly was it for a true freshman? It was third and ten on the final drive uh, on about the 30-yard line, and he just threw a bullet right down the middle to Terry Godwin for a first down at the 11-yard line. Um, and, and Georgia had not really attacked the middle of the field the entire game. So, I mean, you know, say what you will about Jake Fromm, but you said it best. He's a gamer, and when a play needs to be made, yeah. he's just one of those guys, a lot, a lot like Jalen Hurts. So I, I think the matchup's great. I think, unfortunately, we're going to see a game very much like we saw in the Sugar Bowl. Uh, I think it's going to be a knockdown, drag-out kind of game, and you take away the uh, – the, the miraculous sequence of about 35 seconds where Alabama had the two defensive-oriented scores, the uh, interception and the, uh, that, that led to the uh, pain touchdown pass at the goal line, and then the very next play, the pick six. I mean, that's a 10-6 to six game if you look at it that way. So yeah. Uh, yeah. It, wasn't, it wasn't exactly a resounding offensive performance by the Tide. Uh, I, Alabama certainly has the edge because the best of the four units is the Alabama defense. But arguably, Georgia's offense, to me, is better than Alabama's. So I, I really think you've got a pretty even game here, and I'm, I look for a 16-13 kind of game, and it can go either way. Hmm. Kip, I agree with you. I think it's going to be a close game. And just like you know, just like the Rose Bowl, uh, I think the most important play in the Rose Bowl was the special teams play. I, I think you know, there's a high degree of likelihood that when we have this discussion a week from today, and we're talking about what happened in the game, the same thing could happen. But here's what I do know. You are 110% correct, and this is the worst-case scenario for any Auburn fan. Um, you know, uh, the the football gods have put me in a position to have to cheer for Nick Saban and the Alabama Crimson Tide. Um, oh if Georgia wins the game next week, I'm moving to Buffalo. Um, I, I, I can't stay here. I have to leave. I have to leave. I don't care if it's in the middle of winter. I'm going to take a shovel. I'm going to get some snow boots, and I'm moving to Buffalo because I don't know that I can make it through this week, Much make it much less make it through an entire off season when they have eight five star recruits coming in and there there will be you know there's going to be more um uh, merchandise let me say i mean the the merchandise overload already is obnoxious but uh you heard it here first if georgia wins this game i'm moving to buffalo so with that let's talk about the buffalo bills we got 25 minutes left we had the show last week and Pete couldn't make it on the show last week because he was sequestered. Pete was sequestered on last week's show. And and we even talked about it, Pete, that you would not be able to come out of sequestration until around 7.30 Eastern time on New Year's Eve. And so I want to tell you a little bit about my New Year's Eve. And then, Pete, I want to hear about your New Year's Eve. So I'm married to a phenomenal wife. And we had dinner reservations at Del Frisco's in Buckhead at 7 o'clock. Well, at 7 o'clock, all the games that mattered were in the fourth quarter in the NFL. So, <laughs> you know, uh, we get to Del Frisco's, and, you know, I'm, I'm quietly, you know, kind of pulling my phone out to check the score. And my wife said, why don't you sit here because there's a TV at the bar playing football. 
at which time I sat there and said, oh, I love you, baby, I love you. And so about the time that they were showing scores for um, uh, Cincinnati and Baltimore, I get a text from Kip Kiefer that reads, Buffalo, do you believe in miracles, question mark, question mark. (laughs) Yes, at which time simultaneously I see Andy Dalton hurling a touchdown pass. Pete Tasca, walk us through your your New Year's Eve and 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 the sequence of events that led to the Buffalo Bills into the playoff as a wild card. Well, I'm I'm still a bit emotional about the whole thing. Let, let me be honest. Um, you, you, you know. You've you've been on a couple years of the the journey, the saga uh, of the drought with me. Um, it's it's been long, it's been hard, it's been you know everything that you could possibly imagine on the downside um, of being a, a diehard fan of a, a college team, a pro team, and um, you know with the exception of maybe being a Cleveland Brown fan, but at least they have the Cavaliers, right? Then the Indians have been to the World Series a couple of times here. Um, you know, there's really not too many long-suffering fan bases out there that can relate. And granted, this is only a wild card playoff berth, and we're probably going to get pummeled down in Jacksonville. But nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. So yeah. through, nobody cares. Nobody cares. <laughs> it, it really was. Uh, just an amazing, and I don't, I don't toss these these terms around frivolously as a man of faith. And, and this is a quick little side note, Chip. You might want to make yep. other plans other than Buffalo. And here's the quick side note: if you do come to Buffalo, I go to a great church here. It's called the Chapel at Cross Point. Unfortunately, Chip, if you wanted to come to church after moving to Buffalo with the bad boy and, and company, Pastor Jerry Gillis of the Chapel at Cross Point here in Buffalo, New York, is a Georgia Bulldog. He is an active no. He is a graduate no. of the University of Georgia. <laughs> you no. have to make other plans. That is unbelievable. Anyhow, anyhow, getting back to New Year's Eve, we, we had the whole family uh. over at a buddy's house. Uh, a couple of families, you know, a couple of generations of Bills fans, you know, my 14-year-old son, a 15- and 16-year-old son. So we've got the second generation of fans who've never seen anything close to a playoff berth, none whatsoever. We're watching this football game. The Buffalo Bills have it in hand as we're getting close to 7 o'clock there. And then the, the Dolphins all of a sudden start making plays and another onside kick flung by the Bills. And, but thankfully, we win the football game. And then the red zone on NFL Network, well, not NFL Network, uh, DirecTV, the red zone, the, the channel we all know and love so well, is playing every game, and Andrew Siciliano is just calling the games, and it's just glorious. But the Oakland Raiders didn't do their job out in uh, L.A. against the Chargers. Uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars didn't do their job against the Tennessee Titans in Tennessee. It all came down to the red rifle, Andy Dalton. The game was in hand in Baltimore and Cincinnati. But before you know it, Baltimore takes the lead in this football game, and they get one more shot, Cincinnati. And here we are. We're at pins and needles. We're, we're fighting our, our fingernails. You can only imagine the tension 
the, the, the excitement. Were you watching it live? Was it streaming live? You were, we were able to watch it. We were watching it live. All we were watching it as live as could be. It was as live as live as you could possibly imagine. All across Bill's nation, Andy Dalton steps up in the pocket on 4th and 12 and just delivers a, a strike of all strikes to Tyler Boyd. And not only does he deliver the strike to convert the fourth down, fourth and long, which would have put them in position, possibly make a field goal to send it to overtime, which would have been that much more agonizing. He takes it to the house. He takes it to the house. And you can only imagine how Bill's – I'm sure you've seen some of the videos. You, you fellas oh, may yeah. have anybody out there. If you haven't, yeah. you got to check it out. I mean, it's just, it was just such a glorious moment. Here's the one other little caveat for me. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to revel in it at the 100% level. It was right at around 90%. My 14-year-old, right at the start of his basketball season about five weeks ago, broke his foot. He was on three teams. He hasn't been able to play a ball game yet. He just got out of his walking boot this week. So here I am in the midst of, you know, screaming and yelling and jumping around. I'm, I'm going to tackle my son to get him out of the fray so no one steps on his foot and re-breaks the thing so he can still play a little basketball this year. But anyways, long <laughs> story short, it, it was just utterly glorious. It really was. It, it felt truly like a gift from heaven when the stars finally aligned. You guys mentioned a little bit of luck early when we were talking about the college matchups. You know, the Bills have been just a hard luck story of all hard luck stories for so many years. And maybe this is just a start, but it's a great start. The monkey's off our back. The drought is over, folks. And we can breathe again here in Buffalo regardless of what happens from, from this point forward. Go, Bills. You're exactly right, Pete. Let me ask you this. Had the Bills-Dolphins game come to a conclusion at that point, or, mm-hmm. or was there still time left on the clock in Miami? Oh, yeah, no, we were done. The game was over. You know, we, okay. we handled our business. Again, it, it was it was a bit ugly at the end. It got it got a little nerve-wracking at the end, but we won the football game, um, and we won it relatively handily. And nah, I really shouldn't say that, but we won the football game, and that's what we needed to do. The team was actually in the locker room because there is video of our kicker, Stephen Hauschka, apparently took a video of the, the team and the staff watching the game in the locker room, the, the Ravens and the Cincinnati game, and then the reaction of the team when they saw the play from Dalton to Tyler Boyd for the touchdown, and they just exploded. And it, it really was a glorious moment. And then there were, there were just hundreds and hundreds of there's a video out there, too, hundreds of fans out there, 1 o'clock in the morning on New Year's Eve, well, New Year's Day at that point, um, out in the freezing. We're talking freezing cold. It was zero degrees if not colder, on New Year's Eve here in Buffalo. And there were hundreds and hundreds of fans at the airport to greet the team coming off the, the charter you know, flight, coming back to Buffalo from Miami. It was just, just a phenomenal you know, 24, 48 hours. It's still going. We're still reveling in it. It's just feels like we won a Super Bowl. And we just got into the playoffs <laughs> of the wild card. It's really unbelievable. <laughs> Kim Kiefer, you're – Kip Kiefer, your son covers uh, sports betting for the Los Angeles paper. Speculate for a minute. Um, Three months ago, Kip, what do you think the odds were on the board in Vegas that on Sunday the 7th of January, the Jacksonville Jaguars would be playing a wild card game against the Buffalo Bills? What do you think you would have gotten for your money if you put a $2 bet down on that in July? <laughs> I, there, there's no way that I mean, there's no way that could have 
been anywhere near I, – I, I'm just going to throw a number out. I'd say it was 500 to 1. So wow. yeah, that would be that would, <laughs> that would that would be pretty like good that? because just the straight odds of both of them making the playoffs. Uh, yeah. And Steve Butler, uh, we, we got to give the Savage Burn credit. He uh, he he identified the Jaguars as the uh, AFC South champions the second or third week of the season, uh, which even seemed a little outlandish then because I think the next week they went to New York and were promptly punked by the Jets. But uh, the, the the likelihood of, of both those teams making the playoffs, uh, you know, I'm sure we're up in the 75 and 80 to one range. So uh, <laughs> this is this is a phenomenal thing. Pete will enjoy knowing that uh, one of Case's my son's best friends works for the rival newspaper out in Las Vegas. His name is Adam Hill. He also is the co-host of a, a very popular sports radio show in Vegas. Cofield and Company on 1100 ESPN. Uh, Adam Hill is a Buffalo born and bred, and he is exactly – so I've got on dual coast. I have become a de facto Bills fan uh, because of of Pete Taskin and Adam Hill and and just reading there and and listening to their their stories of of woe. And uh, I was, I too was watching NFL Red Zone when that, and and I had no expectations. The Bengals have been such underachieving bombs. They had no incentive whatsoever. Uh, the Ravens are at home. You, you know, they, they they have a playoff berth in their grasp. And when Cincinnati hit that play, I mean, you'd think, I mean, I I just I I couldn't contain myself. I leapt to my feet. Was just. Uh, absolutely <laughs> amazed. So you would think I was the longest running Buffalo fan of all time. So just, Way to go, Chip. Just, Way to represent, Chip. Hey, I'm hoping Amazon Prime could get my Bills merch here before Saturday before or before Sunday before the game. So, <laughs> Well, don't hold your breath on the Bills beating the Jaguars this week, folks. I'll just tell you that. Without with, with Shady McCoy potentially not being uh, able to go at 100% or maybe not at all, uh, Marcus Murphy <laughs> will be our lead back. <laughs> I mean, oh. Are you kidding me? With, with Mike Tolbert, uh, you know, spelling him and, and Patrick DeMarco, former oh. uh, Atlanta Falcon. I mean, it, it, it's a tall order, but, again, it, it, it's kind of beside the point. It really is. The drought's over and we're No, sure it's like you're, it look, you're well. playing with house money. That's exactly right. Exactly. I mean, you're – you're playing with house money, so go ahead and take it. Guys, real quick, before we get into winners and losers, let's talk about head coaching vacancies. Kip, we talked last week about the fact that uh, there are every year there's an average of 6.5 vacancies. Um, this year there were six at the end of the year. When you include the New York Giants vacancy, it gets to seven, but – there were some surprises, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the, the open jobs, the coaches that are not coming back, Bruce Arians at Arizona, um, uh, Bruce Arians retired. I uh, don't know that they would have fired him, but he retired. John Fox was fired at Chicago, not a surprise. Jim Caldwell's out of Detroit. Chuck Pagano's out at Indianapolis. Um, and then uh, Oakland Raiders fired Jack Del Rio. That just surprised me a little bit. But what surprises me a little bit more is, 
it certainly looks like the next head coach in Oakland, if you believe the reports that are all over the wire today, is going to be John Gruden. Everybody's tried to get John Gruden back to leave the booth, and he hasn't done it. Do you think there's something to these stories, Kip? And if so, you know, why would John Gruden take this opportunity to come back and not consider the others that have been in front of him? Two words. Las Vegas. Uh, I I think John Gruden loves the idea of the Raiders. Uh, You know, he'll have a couple of years to it. Uh, to, to kind of build them back up. Obviously, he still has some um, some feelings of allegiance uh, of some work not finished. Um, I think I think if you look at the Raiders' personnel, they have some pieces. Inexplicable the collapse that team had this year. It started with uh, the dismissal of Musgrave, the offensive coordinator, who was coming off a 12 and four season. I, I forgot the other fellow's name now. He's a young guy that they thought was the big prodigy coming up, and it just wasn't the same team. Del Rio kind of lost the team, supposedly, when they let him know on Sunday that he was out right after the game in Los Angeles, um, that a lot of the players, you know, the reports emanated from the locker room that there was actually even some celebration. Nobody was that sad to see him go, so – a guy just kind of lost his team, and and uh, but I, I really think John Gruden likes the the idea of uh, of of being involved in that franchise now, where he's still got uh, a couple of years to build it back up, and by the time they move into that brand new stadium and that brand new market, um, you know I, I I think John likes the idea of being the man in 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 uh, the city that never sleeps uh, on the well I guess New York's in that category too, but. I, I really think that's kind of the appeal, uh, the silver and black and, and the Vegas angle. Uh, so I, I definitely think that's that's I think that's virtually a done deal. I, I really think that's going to happen because they wouldn't have dealt with Del Rio after giving him a big extension last year. Yeah. I mean, they're going to have to eat a lot of salary. But uh, they've already got Gruden in the fold, obvious to me, because they wouldn't, have, they wouldn't yeah. have made that move. The one that surprised me today that I – Absolutely, and 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 uh, yeah. you know, again, it's it's funny we're talking about the Bengals, but Marvin Lewis will yeah. return for two more seasons, which is hard for me to believe. He's already been there fifteen years. It is the classic underachieving franchise, but uh, that's the one that really kind of blew me away today. That uh, uh, the Bengals, I guess, uh, his contract completely up, but met with uh, the owner uh, Mike Brown today, and they have decided that Marvin. Will stay and Hugh Jackson in Cleveland. We th- we thought yeah. he would probably be safe last week because it already had been announced. His record for his two seasons one and thirty one. But Hugh will be returning with bells on oh, next year to the Cleveland Browns. Pete Tasca, let me ask you about that. We talked about Hugh Jackson last last week. I just couldn't fathom that he would be back. I mean, I was going I off on a tangent on how in the world a coach that goes 1-31 and could be back. And then I had an epiphany, and I was like, wait a second. Who in the world would want that job? I mean, who in the world would want that? Are you surprised that Hugh Jackson's going to come back? Or do you think that is such a bad job in the NFL right now that they're going to give him another year? Because who in the world are they going to get? Well, that, that, that's a great point, Chip. I mean, yeah. Uh, sure, number one, I am absolutely shocked. That a guy who's got one win is it one win in two seasons? Is, is that what yeah. it is? I mean, 
It's just, yeah, it's one just unheard one. of. It, it, this stretch of futility is absolutely unheard of. You know, I, there, there may be some parallel somewhere along the lines in NFL history, Tampa Bay Bucks, whatever. It really doesn't matter. It's just an awful it, – it, it's got to be something along those lines. Um, you know, that maybe they're chalking up, you know, some of the uh, – the misses over the last couple of years to the, you know, the, uh, the, the off the um, cuff approach that they took with analytics, you know, they made a, a, a public statement about, you know, the different approach that they were going to take to building the team. Um, you know, once they bottomed out a couple of years ago, it hasn't worked. It does seem like they have a, a pretty decent core of talent on the team. They do have a stockpile of, of draft picks coming up in the draft this year, but again, they haven't, proven to be very uh, adept at making the right picks in the draft. Maybe the new uh, regime will, will, will help that out in the front office, but Hugh Jackson still on the sidelines is absolutely a shock, and it probably does come down to what you said, Chip, a, a default. Um, no one worth you know, hiring to really get the team over the top was going to come to Cleveland you know, with the state of affairs as it is, and Hugh Jackson, hey, I, I mean, at least he gets one more year, you never know. Maybe he can turn that ship around and and maybe he'll get an extra year out of it, and by that time they'll have enough talent base to uh, to make a a little bit of a push in their division. And uh, but wow, what what tough times in Cleveland? Wow, what tough times! It's, it's hard to believe horrible. that Bill Belichick was the coach of the Cleveland Browns from '91 to '95. Pete, real quick before we get into winners and losers, we were talking last week, and you weren't on the show last week, so I'll give you an opportunity at this because I couldn't answer this question. Can you name any of the three? head coaches, the three most recent head coaches of the Cleveland Browns before Hugh Jackson. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. You know it's what? Tough. I can't. <laughs> I really, I no, really can't. I couldn't I, either. I, wow. Wow. They've what had four head coaches since Eric Mangini left in 2010. The three head coaches that preceded Hugh Jackson are oh, Pat God. Shermer, Rob Chudzinski and Mike Pettin. <laughs> I mean, Mike Pettin, though. <laughs> Mike Pettin, yeah. Mike they, Pettin. they pushed Mike Pettin from the Buffalo Bills. He was a defensive yeah, right. coordinator a couple of years back, yeah. Yep. And, he was, and we knew he was No, I couldn't either, so don't feel bad. I, to be. I, I completely <laughs> missed it last time as well. But it wow. goes to show you where that franchise is right now. Complete, Ugh. complete. Terrible. Complete. Bottom of the league, not even close. Uh, guys, our time has run out. We've gone through quickly. Kip Kiefer, we're going to start with you. Your winners and losers for the weekend sports. The winner is the Andy Dalton Foundation. Uh, yeah. Who, who would have known that there was going to be a half a million dollar uh, injection of funds in the Andy Dalton Foundation this time last week? And I give a lot of credit to uh, the people of Buffalo. For uh, that's the right way to show appreciation. So there's no question that the Andy Dalton Foundation, which I'm sure does outstanding work, I, I was aware of him and his wife's charitable uh, efforts a little bit from some features on some NFL programming, but that's definitely the winner. The loser is Danny Cannell. I wish this guy would just shut up. Yeah. ESPN fired yeah. him. I guess he's. I guess he's still hanging around. I'm telling you, I look at, you know, and Chip, I know you tweet and you're on Twitter. There ha- there are at least, uh, I'm going to say yeah. 25 tweets today from Danny Cannell just whining about the fact that it's Alabama and Georgia. Alabama, the third-place yeah. team in their league, is playing for the national championship. 
Uh, hey, Danny, I'm sorry, bud. Uh, the I, yeah. Again, and I'll reiterate what I said before, the four best teams are what the committee's supposed to pick, and I think they did their job. And if you don't like the system, then get it changed, but get over it. Uh, I'm so tired of this third-place team business. Uh, Alabama's one of the four yeah. best teams, and they proved it on the field last night emphatically. They sure did. They definitely did. Pete Tasker, your winners and losers for the week in sports. Well, I'm going to keep it nice and simple. And just to piggyback off of, off of Kip's, you know, winner of the week, the Andy Dalton Foundation. If you don't know out there, anybody who's listening, the Buffalo Bills fans have donated over $100,000 to Andy Dalton Foundation as a result of the, the incredible victory that he delivered us. And most of the donations, over 4,500 donations, have been in the amount of $17, symbolically, wow. uh, to, to, you know, kind of tie into the 17-year drought. My winner of the week, it's the Cincinnati Bengals. Who could it be? Any Anybody else but the Bengals for delivering that victory for us. I mean, again, a gift from God. The loser of the week, I hate to say it, it's the Baltimore Ravens for blowing that football oh, yeah. It's just epic fashion. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as Kip mentioned earlier, I mean, everything on the line for that football team, you know, the setup was perfect for them, and, and they just couldn't get it done. And they let a team that was basically playing for nothing and nobody to convert a fourth and 12 and put a dagger in their heart and keep them out of the playoffs for, I think, in the third or fourth straight year now. The Baltimore Ravens are my loser of the week for sure. Very good winners and losers of the week. My winner of the week is going to be Central Florida head coach Scott Frost. Um, uh, he takes a Central Florida team that he was only at for two years. He took them over, and they were 0-12. And then two years later, they go 13-0. and He is rewarded by his alma mater, who had a coaching vacancy as well, Nebraska. And when they came calling, he answered the call. He's going to be the head coach of the University of Nebraska last year. Excuse me, next year. But he... Stayed with Central Florida, worked it out with Nebraska where he would coach Central Florida in the bowl game because he said, it's a commitment that I made to these kids that I want to honor with these kids. Look, take nothing away from Central Florida. Auburn didn't look like they wanted to be there. Central Florida did. They dominated the line of scrimmage. Those players were happy to be there. Their fan base was happy to be there. They were happy that their coach came back to coach them. And and I think i got to give a shout-out to Scott Frost. Not only is he a class act, but he's a really good head coach. And I wouldn't be surprised if he has a lot of success in turning that Nebraska program around. My loser of the week, and this is an interesting loser of the week, but I don't think the loser yesterday was Baker Mayfield. Despite how, you know, despite how he is being uh, – you know, he is being portrayed by Georgia fans with all the, the memes in uh, social media today. My loser of the week is the consensus number one quarterback, uh, dual threat quarterback, Justin Fields, uh, from right up the road in, in, uh, at Harrison High School. He's a commit to the Bulldogs, but I got bad news for Justin Fields. Um, there is no way, let me repeat, no way, that Georgia will bench Jake Fromm uh, for anybody the entire time he's at Georgia, so long as he's healthy and he has eligibility. And so uh, Justin Fields, the number one player coming out of college, excuse me, high school football this year, um, will be will spend the first three years of his college career 
in the Wildcat formation. So Justin Fields is my loser of the week. He knew when he committed that Jake Fromm was a true freshman. Uh, look, Jake Fromm's a stud. He's a baller. So's Justin Fields. But it's chronology, and he's got to wait in line. Uh, Kip, Pete, thanks so much for being on, as always. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We will catch you next week, same place, same time. We're going to be talking about the NFL national title game, excuse me, the NCAA national title game, and we're going to be recapping the wild card weekend, which might see a Buffalo Bills win. We'll get to talk to Pete Task about it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll catch you next Tuesday on the Red Zone Sports.